Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. We're going to be going, um, finishing up Perilous Times, and I'll probably take about four weeks to finish Perilous Times, and then we'll start a new study probably sometime in October, and then we'll re-up everybody at that point in time, and there will be a fee and stuff like that with the materials that we'll give out. But there's no materials for this one. We're finishing up Perilous Times from uh, last spring, and we got some things to go through, a couple more items, uh, three or four more items I want to point out about Perilous Times. I'll explain that in just a bit. Um, that being the case, um, let's start um, with a word of prayer, and we'll get running. Father, thank you, Lord, for this uh, evening that you have given us at our new place. Father, I thank you for the folks that are gathered here. We pray now as we study your word that we'd understand it, um, that we would have illumination by the Holy Spirit, that we would apply your words and live it out before you. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. So what I do on, on Wednesday nights is I do a Bible study, a uh, topical Bible study on perilous times is what we're doing, and then we take a break, and then the second hour I do current events that, that relate to prophecy. And so that's kind of our prophecy track that I'll, I'll talk about. I have, I, I have some stuff I want to talk about, about the UN, about the 15-minute cities. I want to talk about um, uh, what they're planning on doing on different cities uh, uh, through California and all, all, all over the world. And we'll do that second time, uh, sorry, second half uh, when we talk about prophecy. But to, today we're going to talk about perilous times, obviously, because the Bible warns that uh, perilous times will come. And that's the idea uh, of the last days. And the idea of perilous times means that things will go haywire. Things won't make sense. Things will get crazy. And that's what we're seeing on the scene with a lot of... Uh, the immorality, obviously. But I want you to think about on, on this level. We have seen things and people do things, like for instance in politics, that is part and parcel demonic. And the reason I say that is because if you study demonology and you study what demons do and their function, um, they, 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 they do things that has no benefit whatsoever to any human. Everything is destructive. Everything is to destroy and, and wipe out. So like there's nothing they do positive to, positively towards human beings. Well, when I see actors on the world stage and that everything they do is meant to destroy things, then what you're supposed to take away from that is there's demonic activity happening. I, I mean, some of these politicians, well, I mean, the majority of them, as an example, are, doing, are making decisions that have no benefit whatsoever to people. It, it destroys the society. It destroys the nation. It destroys everything, except for them, obviously. They benefit from it, right? But anything, any decision they make, and then... Another aspect you're seeing about people is the habitual lying that you see with people. I mean, these people lie as easy as it is for you and I to breathe. And, and, and the thing about it is, is when you're in demonology, and let's say you're dealing with a demon per se, a demon will, will, will do everything they can to avoid telling the truth. They'll lie, 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 and you can't get the truth out of them. And that's just kind of their language. It's just that they lie, they lie, they lie. Well, when you see human beings reflecting this, uh, this, this, this same attitude, 
that there's nothing that's true coming out of their mouth. Like for the media, there's nothing true coming out of the media's mouth. It's just all lies and propaganda. And, and when you see that, you, 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 you marry that and realize this is demon. This is demonology, and the two are connected, which tells us that the demons are in high, high activity around people, especially people in charge. Um, I'll give you another example. When you go before somebody, and, and they're sitting there, like uh, I'll use the, 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 the Kern County Superintendent uh, board meetings and stuff like that, and you sit there, and these people think that people can change their gender, and that you can, and that, that kids can keep that information from parents, and you try to tell them even on a, a not only a, a, a legal basis not to do that, but then on the moral basis, they they have no qualms in grooming children. That's when you know you're dealing with demonic influence on these individuals, and that's that's how far things are going. So, the scripture then obviously warns about perilous times that th- this would happen. And here you are as a believer in the midst of all this craziness that's going around in the world. And, uh, you know, we got Supreme Court justices that don't even know how to define a woman anymore. And you're like, okay, what's, what is that? That's called perilous times. It's a very difficult time. And, and honestly, I'm going to tell you right now, from, from America's standpoint, prophetically, we're, all, we're in a cold war uh, with the, our, uh, people in our country that want to destroy our country. This is a cold war with a, basically, it's a, it's a communistic takeover of the United States. Now, here's the interesting thing. You're like, well, Brandon, that's political. Well, no, it's not not political, because if you study communism and then you study demonology, communism's ideology, ideology and principles match demonology. So it doesn't take a rocket science. Any, anybody that's studied theology and has studied de- demonology knows that when you see communism, you're looking at demonology. That's what the, 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 the philosophy is. It's not a political philosophy. It's actually a religious philosophy. And, and when you see a, a good portion of our country that actually wants this and thinks collectivism and thinks that socialism and, and, and equity and all these other junk uh, terms that you've ever heard, uh, they think that's good. That's demonology. They practice that. Um, and so that's perilous times. So, so what Paul talked about for people living in perilous times, is he, give, he gave some advice to Timothy. And this is what we have been studying. We've been studying how, how does a believer living in crazy times like this deal with things? How, how do we cope with this? Because people are losing a grip. They're like, I, I, I don't understand the world anymore. I don't understand people. I don't understand this whole transgender movement. I don't get that, man. It, well, this is what anchors you in your life. And Paul tells Timothy, this is how you're supposed to live. Now, what we've went through is his, his, these different bullet points. And he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life. So we talked about the doctrine, which is theology. You have to be grounded in your theology. We, t- we talked about that. Manner of life is the way you conduct yourself in the affairs of this world. Uh, purpose, you have to know what your purpose is that God has called you to do. So you have to know your purpose. That's the problem why, why depression among young people is so high. It's not only because of the lockdowns. It's because they've told our young people uh, a Marxist communist mentality that you're, 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 you come from the primordial soup. Uh, there is no God. You make up your own gods and you, you try to find meaning in life by some existential experience. Well, that doesn't help anybody. 
that actually causes depression because what God wants to tell you is, I'm gonna tell you where you came from, I'm gonna tell you where you're at and who you are, and I'm gonna tell you where you're going. When you have past, present, and future given to you by God, it actually brings purpose in your life. And when you have purpose in your life, you get on task and you know what you're here for, and it, it, it actually combats depression in your life. But if you're told there's no purpose to your life, you're instantly gonna go into depression. And so that's what they're doing to a lot of our young people, the millennials, high, high uh, rates of, of depression, anxiety, and things of that nature. Okay, then we talked about faith. So back in May and June, we talked about the importance of faith, and I'm not gonna go into that. You guys can uh, uh, take a look at it uh, online in our, in our past uh, lessons on faith. So now where we're at is long-suffering, and he says, basically here, the way you're going to be able to survive is this other aspect of long-suffering in order to deal with things. Okay, so let's, let's, let's look at what long-suffering is in the Bible. Um, the Greek word is makrothemia, okay? And basically what you're looking with, with the Greek definition is endurance, or forbearance, uh, a temporary tolerance and restraint in the face of provocation, a slowness to avenging wrongs. Okay, so, so this is the concept of long-suffering. So it's more than patience, okay? So it, it's more than just someone saying, be, well, be patient. That's part of it, but that's not the deeper sense. The deeper sense is you're offended, okay? Somebody has offended you. Someone has provoked you. Someone has sinned against you. Something is happening to you. And, and that you're re- being able to restrain yourself in the face of provocation. Okay? Now, this is not about not defending yourself. There is no such thing as a Christian pacifist. If someone is to attack you, if someone's attacking your family, then you are to protect This is why Jesus told the disciples, I'm getting ready to leave you, basically. I need you to sell all you have and buy a sword. Okay? And that's why he wanted them to to be able to defend themselves. But this is is not about defending yourself from a physical attack. This is about a provocation that somebody is trying to goad you into acting against them. Okay? Okay? They're trying to get you to do something stupid. They're trying to see if you'll sin. So this could be in the form of a temptation, no doubt about it, but it's a provocation. And, and what you're seeing, let's, let's just talk about it on a societal level. If we're in a cold civil war right now with communists and leftists in America, you know, so that's, this is a spiritual reality. What do they want out of this? Why do you think they're going after children? Why do you think they're provoking uh, parents and saying that you don't have rights to your kids, we'll raise your kids, and we get to we brainwash them? Why, 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 does, you know, why did the FBI or CIA or whatever, just the DOJ, say these parents are terrorists you know, that go to these school board meetings? Why, do, why are they using that kind of language? And why are they particularly going after kids? Well, there's all kinds of reasons they're going after kids, but one of the main things is to provoke you. The real reason is they want to get at you so deeply that it elicits a response from you, especially when they're going after kids. And they know that going after kids will elicit a certain type of response. 
So the thing about this is, yes, we stand up for the rights of children and parents and all that stuff, but they want you to actually take matters into your own hands physically and do the Bubba factor. Okay? And the Bubba factor means you take matters into your own hands, you're going to do something stupid and hurt somebody, and then that's when they can say, aha, we've got exactly what we want out of you. And now we can put martial law down or whatever, whatever that might be. And, and, and that's where you have to understand that where we're at in America is they're trying to provoke a civil war. They actually want it. The left actually wants it. They want a revolution. And they want to have a reason to provoke you with to cause it. So that's, what's, that's where it's at in America. But now let's go to a personal level. You're going to have people that Satan will use against you to provoke you, to provoke you into doing something stupid. Now, here's what you have to understand from a demonic level. The demons know you. They watch you. They're watching for your patterns. What do you mean? Well, they're looking at your idiosyncrasies. What is the pattern of your habitual behavior? They know they can see your DNA. They know they read your DNA. They know the, your proclivities, their natural proclivities. They also know your history because they've been watching you all their lives. So they know your hurts. They know your pains. And they know what tempts you. And they actually know a certain temptation that would completely take everyone down. But God doesn't permit them to do that because God holds them back According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way of escape. So the demons already know exactly how to take everybody in this room down. But they're not permitted to do that. They're actually kept at bay by God from going full Monty on you. So when God allows temptation in your life, it is not beyond what you can bear. Okay, so if any provocation comes your way to act and retaliate, they know exactly how to do this. They know how to push your buttons. They know what conditions to put you in. They know exactly what they can feed off of your history or whatnot. So the provocation typically is, is, is probably going to come through a human being uh, that's maybe close to you, and that person will be used as a useful idiot against you. Now, what I mean by useful idiot is that the person doesn't even know they're being used by the demonic, and they're being used to push your buttons in certain ways to get to provoke you to do something stupid, and that's part of the prov provocation or the temptation. And here is the solution to it. The solution is I have to be long-suffering. Okay, what does that mean? Well, first of all, Messiah explained it in this sense in the fact that he goes, if someone insults you, personally insults you verbally, not physically, but verbally, he, called, he said you should turn the other cheek. And, and uh, again, turning the other cheek is not Christian pacifism. Turning the other cheek is a Jewish idiom. And this, this is important to understand from the Jewish background in all of this. Turning the other cheek mean, means that I, can't, I will accept a verbal insult and not retaliate to that verbal insult. It has nothing to do with physical. It has to do with a verbal insult, okay? And that's what Satan will do, is verbally insult you in the deepest way possible. He will get exactly at you, at your core, and he knows how to verbally assault you at your core, which really drives you crazy when they, someone says a particular thing about you. It just drives you crazy, okay? And that's what will be said to provoke you. 
Now, it's going to take a, 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 a very strong character to not be provoked. And that's where long-suffering comes in. And, and here's, notice the definition of forbearance. I'm going to temporarily tolerate what someone just did to me, okay? Verbally. I'm not talking about physical threat, but verbally, okay? I'm going to temporarily restrain myself and give the avenging over to God. Now, if I eventually have to do something, I'm not going to do it right in the moment unless it's threatening me physically. I'm going to forbear it and wait for the operative moment to deal with it, okay? What Satan wants you to do is react in the heat of the, 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 the temptation and which can cause you to do stupid things. What you need to do in long-suffering is I suffer the insult and I give myself time in order to formulate the next thing I need to do in, in response to this. And the response would be, I'm not going to retaliate, but I'm now going to put boundaries and limitations on that person who is trying to provoke me, okay? So in the heat of the battle, you don't have time to do that. You ha- you're not thinking because someone is emotionally trying to charge you up to provoke you. And so your best bet, step away, turn the other cheek, regroup, and then come back with a boundary and limitation and a consequence to that behavior. So, so it's not that you don't deal with it. Don't, please don't get me wrong. It's not that you don't deal with the issue. It's that I'm going to deal with the issue after I've thought through things. I've looked at the Bible. I understand what, what I should be doing. And then I will react at the appropriate time. So Jesus is called meek. Okay? It's not weak. It means meek. And it means he, that, that meekness means that Jesus was power under control. And we get the concept in the, in the, in the Hebrew is that um, in the Hebrew culture of a bridle that's in a horse's mouth. That horse is a very powerful animal. It's just full of muscle, but it can be easily controlled by the bridle. As long as that bridle's in the mouth of the horse, it controls a very powerful animal. And so meekness is the idea of the bridle power under control. And another way of understanding it is like carrying a sword and, but you, you, you have the power to pull that sword when you need to, but you can refrain from unsheathing that sword and you retain that power. That's what it means to be meek, that I have the power to do something, but I'm not going to do it. Now, you saw that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was provoked, uh, obviously, and, 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 and Peter's striking out and they're trying to provoke Jesus. And he says, look, Peter, don't you understand? I can call 12 legions down and we could take care of business here, but I'm not going to do that. Of course, according to God's plan, he's going to let himself be arrested and crucified. But that's the idea of meekness, that Christ has all the power in the world to wipe people out if he wanted to and stop that, but he doesn't because they're obviously in a different plan uh, that needed to happen. Okay, so this is slowness to avenging wrongs because here's the thing. When the wrong is done to you and you're in the heat of the moment, you will go too far. That's the problem. You will provo- you'll be provoked and you will cross the boundary. You will, you, will, you, will, you will hammer it too much. And that's the problem. We won't, we won't approach it in a measurable way. We'll be out of control. And so we talk, you know, talk to parents sometimes as an example. Hey, man, uh, don't, don't uh, you know, make sure you're calm 
uh, as much as you can when you're disciplining your children. Because if you're not, you'll go too far. You'll, you'll overdo the discipline is the idea. And that's what long-suffering is trying to do. Okay, so this is what the culture is doing to you. This is what the demons are trying to do to you, is to provoke you. Okay, so let me give you a parable about uh, Jesus using the concept of long-suffering as an illustration of how God is long-suffering towards the nation of Israel in this particular passage. Um, And that screen, Alfonso, that screen is too, is cutting off my last word. Um, So I don't know what's going on with that. The screens are not covering my whole thing. Anyway, let's start there. So this is in Luke uh, 13. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. And let me read the last words. It says, uh, oops, did it come down there? Yeah, there we go. Good. But if it bears fruit well, uh, or sorry, cut it down, why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Okay, simple, simple uh, parable. But it is an illustration of the Lord's forbearance towards the nation of Israel in the, in the context. Okay, so let's explain the context. And let's explain the, the forbearance to understand the particulars in it. Because he's given this to the disciples. And he's given it to us to understand forbearance. Okay. The scene is this. Messiah has is demonstrated to Israel, the nation of Israel and its leaders, that he is the Messiah. He's done the messianic miracles, uh, healing blindness, uh, exercising deaf mute demons, and then uh, the third one was uh, healing leprosy. Yeah, yeah. So those are the three messianic miracles, so he does that. And by year one and a half, he's already presented himself. And by year one and a half, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrins have already made a decision that um, they're going to reject him, okay? And Messiah tells you the reasons why they rejected him in another parable later on. And he, and, and he uses it of, of, of a son going to the workers in a field. And they said, let's kill the son because we will not have this man to rule over us. And so Messiah actually gives you a glimpse of what their purposes were for rejecting him. And it was because the religious leaders didn't want to give up their positions of power and have Messiah rule over them. They wanted to rule. Seems crazy, but that's, that's what Messiah is basically explaining. Okay. So by year one and a half, they reject Messiah, and they can't deny the, the, the miracle, so they say, well, he is doing works by the power of Beelzebub. And so they attribute it to uh, the prince of demons and, 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 and reject him formally. Okay, so that's a formal rejection by year one and a half. So after year one and a half, Jesus then turns to the disciples, and he's going to prepare them for the church. And so everything changes at that point in time. That's year one and a half. He still has two and a half more years, sorry, uh, two more years of his ministry, okay? So the bulk of his ministry is actually to prepare the disciples. So this passage is actually explaining the rejection of Israel with him. And the rejection, if you go back, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. That's God the Father planting Israel, okay? So Israel is the fig tree in this passage, okay? 
uh, within this. And, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So the idea is John the Baptist came, tried to get the nation to repent and prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. So Jesus came, and he's there, and they rejected him. So in essence, the nation of Israel is not producing fruit, and the, the, the fruit it should be producing is believing on their Jewish Messiah, okay? So he says, I found none in, in general as a nation. If he would have found fruit and the nation would have accepted him and he would have started the Messianic kingdom, he would have died on the cross still, rose, and then started the Messianic kingdom. He still needed to do that. But nonetheless, Israel then rejects it. Okay, so, so now what? He's found none. Verse seven, then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Now notice the three years, that refers to obviously Messiah. Uh, ministry, right? I've come seeking fruit on the fig tree and find none. Well, cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Okay? So, the concept is, because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, immediately then, Israel deserves punishment at that point. By year one and a half, Israel as a nation deserves punishment because the religious leaders have formally rejected their own Messiah. Okay, and so why does it use up the ground? Well, again, God has a promise made to Abraham called the Abrahamic covenant, and he has to make good on those promises, and he will. So what happens here then is the nation now has rejected the Messiah, and now they're gonna be set aside. They should be punished, and they will, but there's going to be a forbearance given, okay? And the forbearance is given in verse eight, but he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, okay? So Messiah is gonna do the work to help it maybe come and bear fruit, right? And he goes, and if it bears fruit well, then great, awesome, but if it not, it, it, but if not, after that, you can cut it down, or you can judge it. So what Messiah is, is offering, God the Father, is, look, let me do the work. I'm long-suffering, Father. You're long-suffering. Let me do some work to it, and, and let's see if I can put fertilizer around it and see if it will bear fruit within the next year. What does this mean? Again, it's an example of forbearance. How did the forbearance happen? Well, the forbearance happened, so... You, you go through the rest of Messiah's ministry. He, he suffers, dies on the cross, resurrects, right? And then, obviously, he is preparing the disciples to start the church. Okay. So the church starts at Pentecost, and that's what the book of Acts continues to chronicle. And, it, and, and the, the Acts shows you the transition period between the church and Israel, okay? And what's getting ready to happen. Well, Messiah is, is crucified in 30 AD. He resurrects in 30 AD, obviously, three days later, and he ascends back into heaven in 30 AD. So what ends up happening is you will see this back and forth between the church and Israel in the book of Acts. And Peter will speak to Israel. Paul will speak to the synagogues. And, and the pattern in the book of Acts is to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And they will continue that pattern and this pattern stays with us today. Even the book of Romans will say that to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And what they're trying to do is try to get Israel 
to come back to faith in the Messiah after it has happened. And this period of time, apparently, lasts between 30 AD and 70 AD. Okay? And that's significant. For 40 years, the apostles are still witnessing to Israel at at the same time building the church. Now, Messiah already knows, and God already knows, obviously, that uh, it's not going to be until the tribulation until Israel comes to faith in the Messiah. But nonetheless, it's still going to be given a chance to come back. And many do, sing, uh, singular Jews come back and, and like 3,000 are, are rescued in one day and saved in one day. And the early church was primarily Jewish, no doubt about that. But it's not as a nation as a whole. What's the point? 40 years. Where have you seen 40 years? Well, you see it all over the Bible. 40 years wandering in the desert, right? Those kinds of things, 40 days, yada, yada, yada. You'll see 40 all over the place. 40 is a time of testing symbolically. So what Israel is given is 40 years between Messiah's death and resurrection until 70 AD. And what happened in 70 AD? Israel is finally punished and dispersed in 70 AD by Titus and the Roman legions that came in, surrounded Jerusalem, they sacked them. Josephus says they killed about 1.2 million Jews, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Temple records go, go, are gone. So now today, a Jew cannot trace their origins, uh, their family lineage of what tribe they're from, except for the tribe of Levi through DNA research. So the, the temple is destroyed, the records are destroyed, and uh, Israel starts their dispersion, which is predicted by the prophets and predicted by the Messiah. That not one stone will be left on another, and the prophet said you would be dispersed among the nations. And so that happens in 70 AD. But what's the point? 40 years had went by to give Israel a second chance to receive Messiah. And individuals, Jews did, but not the nation. So the nation of Israel then is set aside temporarily, and now the church age will dawn. And now this is all part of God's plan, obviously. And, and now we're in this transition period where the, t- where the fullness of the Gentiles is ending, and now we're watching God work with Israel again. Now they're a nation, and eventually they'll, be, uh, they'll come to faith in the Messiah during the tribulation period, and it's been for 2,000 years, and that will happen in the future. But it's, the, it, it's a, an example of forbearance. That's what the passage is trying to say. And God was willing to give another 40 years to Israel even after they rejected their Messiah. So it's not like God didn't extend grace to them or, or mercy, he did. So let's go back to us. If God can extend forbearance of judgment, which they deserve, let's cut it down, to the nation of Israel for rejecting their own Messiah, how, how much more you know, should we be able to do it on our personal lives is the idea. That's what the passage is trying to t- say. That, that it, it, you know, you need to be able to turn the other cheek if God himself is turning the other cheek and, and, and them saying to God that you're doing power, uh, works of the devil, okay? That's the ultimate verbal insult, right? Of claiming Jesus is doing Beelzebub's work. Okay, That being the case, then, let's talk about us, then. So there's our example, then how do you apply it? 
Is it about just simple patience? No, it's beyond simple patience. Why is it people can't refrain from retaliating? Why is it people can't forbear? Why is it they, they act impatiently, which is part of it, and they act and do something foolish? What is going on? Let's just maybe use the general term of why can't people be patient? It comes down to a very fundamental thing. Well, people will say, well, I'm just not patient. I'm just not patient. Uh, I just speak, I, I just, I, you know, sometimes I speak without thinking, Brandon. Yeah, I know, that gets you in trouble a lot. I get it. You speak without thinking, but why do I do that? Why, why is that? There's a fundamental reason behind this, and this is the core reason for uh, uh, the core undergirding, the core root of being able to be long-suffering. Because what's in the term long-suffering? The term is what? Suffering. Oh, so that gives me a clue to why this is so hard. In order to do it, it implies that I must be willing to suffer. Now you're catching on. The reason people are not patient, the reason people will not take a verbal insult, they refuse to suffer. They refuse it. And because they refuse it, they can't give any patience they can't give any forbearance, and so they retaliate. They can't, and, and if you are not willing to suffer, then you can't turn the other cheek. Jewish idiom speaking. Again, we're not talking about physical. We're talking about verbal, okay? So what is it about people that don't, they don't like to suffer? What, what's the problem with suffering? Well, I can tell you, the, the people don't like pain. That's the issue. People don't want to experience pain. Okay, I get it. No one in here wants to experience pain. I get it. Because it hurts. Yeah, but it's a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more than that. And this is what the demons know about you. It's not just that someone's verbally insulting you. Like, for instance, I mean, for instance, I mean, we were parking people on Sunday here, okay? And someone gave one of our parkers the bird, okay? Um, <laughs> So, they didn't want to be told where to park, apparently. So, you come to church, you flip someone off and say, I'll, you know, whatever, man. And, and you think about that, and you're thinking, you, you, you realize this is, our first, this is our first day, and we're going to have a parking problem, and you know it's going to be hectic, but you're so impatient that you want to flip someone off. Okay. Okay, and then you sit in church and act like you didn't did, do, do it. It's a total disconnect, right? It's just total disconnect. And don't tell him if he cussed the guy out in the, in the, under his breath or whatever. I don't know. But, but what, what is the deal? Well, the person doesn't want to suffer. Well, what's the suffering? Well, you might have to wait a little longer to find a parking place. Or may, not, may have to park somewhere where he doesn't like to be parked or whatever. It, but he doesn't want to feel any pain. He doesn't want to feel any suffering by going to church. And obviously, you can see the problem there. It's very, very juvenile, very sophomoric. Uh, you know, most people have the emotional stability of a 13-year-old. I get it, because uh, they, they have arrested development in m many of their lives. But the person doesn't want to experience any pain whatsoever in their life. Okay, so let's drill down on that, because you think, well, okay, what's behind that? Well, it's more than just experiencing pain. A lot of times, the pain that the demons are inflict through somebody hits a hurt area in their life. 
okay? And, and uh, that, that exasperates when, like, you're told, you got to go park here. Well, it may be just more than, than oh, I, just don't, I don't want to be told where to park. It's maybe that this person was told no all their life by their parents or something, and were never allowed to do something, and now they have a problem with authority, and so when authority just tells them to simply park here, they go crazy. Because that little pain incites a bigger pain inside of them that they don't want to experience and they don't want to feel. And so they go from, hey, go park here to, boom, nuclear. They go to the nth degree because it incites something deep down inside of them and they don't want to feel pain of that wound. So a lot of what people are experiencing is they don't want to feel the wounds of the old pain. Um, <clears throat> Let's just say someone was beat growing up. They were, they were physically abused by their parents. That kind of person's going to guard themselves. That kind of person's going to be on the prowl. That kind of person's going to have a chip on their shoulder. That kind of person is going to be in protect mode most of the time. And if anyone tries to get any closer or whatever, and they feel that they're threatened, they're going to react. They're going to react even either running or fighting or whatever it might be, but they're, they're going to have a proclivity in that area. Well, if that's your proclivity, guess where Satan's going to attack you on? He's going to pro- attack you in that area to provoke you to not be long-suffering or forbearance and put it off. So, so then what you start realizing, it comes down to people's core issues of why they can't forbear, why they can't be long-suffering. And, and it comes down to, I don't want to experience the pain I've already felt. Well, here's the problem with that. The way God has designed life, the whole paradigm in which he has designed things, the only way you can relate to him, the only way you can get through this life is to feel pain, is to suffer. And the core issue of suffering is sacrifice. So the deeper root from pain is sacrifice. God has designed life the way it is, and you have to incorporate the fall into this. But the only way that you can relate to God is through sacrifice, right? You're saved through sacrifice. So then your way of relating to him as a believer is always going to be through sacrifice, you must suffer in the way that Christ suffers to, to fellowship in his sufferings. If you're going to fellowship and be part of the Messiah's body, you will suffer and feel pain. But in order to deal with the pain and the sacrifice that's necessary, you must be long-suffering. So it comes down to this. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself? Because if you are, then you can relate to God. You can relate to the Messiah. You can be more like him. Because you can't be more like the Messiah if you're not willing to feel pain. You have to be willing to feel pain. And you have to be willing to process it and deal with it with truth. No doubt about it. There's no running from it. You actually have to take up your cross. Right? You have to take it up. Those who refuse to take up the cross, the reason why is they don't want to feel pain and they don't want to sacrifice. Oh, okay. Well, then how are you going to relate to God? Because the whole system is geared towards you being willing to sacrifice. What does Romans 12 say? 
You must be a living sacrifice. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, a living sacrifice is the only way you can step into maturity. Like, I've used the analogy of coming here at uh, Rock Harbor and, and coming to this place as this is cr- us crossing Jordan into the promised land, right? Um, and then we've obviously been wandering in the desert. Um, the crossing of the Jordan is a picture, the writer of Hebrews will use this, the writer of Hebrews and the book of Hebrews will use the, uh, the analogy of Israel going into the promised land, wandering the desert, crossing Jordan as a picture of maturity. So for instance, most people think, well, the promised land, that's heaven. No, it's not. The promised land is Canaan, okay? And you have to eventually cross Jordan from wandering into Canaan. And it's a one-time event, right? Joshua crossed the Jordan one time when they decided to go over, okay? So when you actually look at the Greek in Romans chapter 12, you as a believer have to make a one-time decision that you're going to cross over Jordan, so to speak, and go into the promised land, which is actually the decision to go into maturity. That's the decision. That's the analogy of Israel going into the promised land. It's not going into heaven. It's a decision that I'm going to go into the fight, that I'm going to go into the battle. Because when you're in the desert, what, there's no battle in the desert, is there? You're saved, and you're wandering around, and the Lord's having to feed you manna and water, and that's how you're surviving, but it's a very infantile stage. You're not really doing anything. You're just wandering. And most Christians actually won't cross Jordan. They refuse to because they like being fed manna. They like being water given to them because they don't want to fight. Why don't they want to fight? Because they don't want to experience pain. Because if they have to fight, they have to experience sacrifice, pain, and then that requires them to be long-suffering because you're going to get messed around with by people that you can't take vengeance on because vengeance is his, saith the Lord. And so, so the long-suffering is, I have to put up with people offending me verbally, calling me all kinds of names and not retaliate, and I have to put that off and let God deal with that in his timing. Because they're going to lie about you. They're going to say everything against you. They're going to make stuff up about you that's not true. And they will totally malign your reputation. And here's the thing. Everyone wants to prize their reputation. You want to keep your reputation. There's no doubt about that. But this world, the demonic, wants to destroy you. And they will make stuff up about you. And they will create lies about you and all kinds of stuff. And man, that's really going to make you upset because you know it's not true. And you're going to want to retaliate. You're going to want to right the wrong. And you're not going to be able to. You're just not. They're going to just demonize you. That's how they're doing it. Look on the political scene, what they're doing. Right? They're just demonizing people. They don't like you, they cut you off. Cancel you. And so, so what do you do? Well, this is where sacrifice comes in. This is how long suffering happens. I must be willing to experience pain. Now, here's the thing about pain. There's two types of pain. There's redemptive pain, and then there's bad pain. You're not getting through this life without pain. Okay, but you have a decision to make of how you will process the pain. Okay, it's going to come. 
So if you decide to not process pain with truth, okay, then I can tell you what that pain will do and why it's non-redemptive, why it's bad pain. Because it will make you worse. It'll make you a worse human being. It will make you a worse Christian because you will be bittered up, unforgiving, uh, dissatisfied with life, critical, nasty. And that's what happens with bad pain. It doesn't redeem. It actually makes the person worse. If you will process the pain with truth, why is this happening to me? Then the truth sets you free, and then that pain then becomes redemptive. You can redeem, that pain becomes redemptive. And you can even do this on your personal life in the pain that you have suffered in your history. So if you've had pain and trauma from the past, people did wrong to you, the option is not to bury it so you don't feel the pain anymore. The option, the right option is to unearth it, bring it out, and re-experience the pain, but re-experience the pain in truth. That's how you process it. And once you re-experience the pain in truth, you process it, you grieve it, you have to grieve it. That's what God gave you grief for. You have to cry it out, you have to get it out of you because the grieving process with truth actually releases the old pain. And, and, and then you can move on. But you're, you can't do that unless you're willing to feel the pain. And most people don't. So they go to a secular counselor and the secular counselor says, you know what, let's not deal with your past. Let's just push it under the rug and let's move on. And I've even heard Christians do the counselors misquote the apostle Paul when Paul says, forgetting what is behind, I press on. That is completely out of context. It's not forgetting your past, forgetting your trauma, forgetting your pain. It's not that. You can't do that. That's, that's when you detach from reality. If you think that forgetting what happened to you is how you cope with life, you are slowly becoming detached from reality. That's what happens. So you have to go back into your pain, bring it into reality, bring it into truth, process it with truth, and then you can be set free. Okay. So that's the way you turn the pain to redemptive pain rather than just bad pain. So at the core of this, everybody has to embrace their own cross. That's what it comes down to. And you have to realize that between you and God, he's going to ask sacrifice of you. And, and, and quite frankly, you have the option of whether or not you're going to take it. It's up, it's up to you. But if you do embrace that cross and you're willing to sacrifice, then not only do you receive the temporal blessings of becoming more like Christ and, and the abundant life that you actually experience, which is beyond imaginable that most people don't, don't get, uh, you get rewards, eternal rewards for that as well. But let me, let me just stick on the, the temporal blessings. What people, what, what, people ask me, well, what is the abundant life, Brandon? because I don't know, really know what you're talking about. The abundant life is summed up in one word, freedom. It's freedom. That's the abundant life. It's not money, it's not wealth, it's freedom. What do you mean? Freedom means I'm set free from not only ultimately my sins, but what has been done to me. 
who people told me they were or I was or what I thought about myself. You're free from your old identity. You're free from your, from your wounds because now you've processed with, the tr- with truth and now you're free from the wounds affecting you becoming a root of bitterness. You become free. And here's the thing. Most people have never really experienced freedom. But when they do, what they'll tell me um, and I've experienced this myself, is you feel like a weight has been lifted off of you spiritually. You, you, you feel lighter. You're like, okay, I, was, I, I didn't realize I was carrying this so long with me um, that well, the weird thing is I was willing to bear it and have that pain rather than deal with the real pain. And, and then once it's off their shoulders, they're like, oh, now I understand what you're talking about. I'm not carrying this burden. Remember, Messiah said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, for, for my yoke is light. What did he mean by that? Well, the teaching yoke of the, of the rabbi, that's a rab, rabbinic term, but he was saying heavy laden, heavy laden with your own junk that we carry around that you're not free from, and you carry this junk. And he wants you to be free of that. Well, the only way you can be free is you, you take the yoke of the rabbi. Well, what's the yoke of the rabbi? The yoke of the rabbi of the Messiah is the truth. I am the truth. Remember, way of truth in life, right? So the, when you take on the yoke or the teachings of the rabbi, the Messiah, you become free. So it's all your decision. It's yours to make. And he waits for you to make that decision. Okay. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.